Good morning, and welcome back to our study through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. But this week, we're moving deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. As we go deeper into this message from Jesus, more humility, deeper humility is needed for us. Jesus' words throughout the sermon are incredibly profound, they're challenging, and they're convicting. You know, when I started this sermon, just at the beginning of the year, back in January, this series, I thought, you know, this is going to be pretty straightforward. Jesus says some things, and then I say some things, and this is going to go pretty well for us. Instead, in just these two months, I have to confess, these have been some of the hardest messages to write and put together. Probably the hardest ones I've had to do since I've had the privilege of serving here. Because every passage is a convicting challenge, followed by another convicting challenge challenge. And that pattern will continue today, and that's why we need humility. I I tried to be a little light at the very beginning because today's passage is not light. It's not funny, and it's not amusing in any way, shape, or form. It is deadly serious, and it would be inappropriate to be lighthearted about what we have to talk about today. I try to be lighthearted when I can, but in this case, the text means that we should be very serious about what we're looking at because it is a serious teaching. And if we pay attention to it, we'll realize that Jesus's words here apply to each and every one of us, not just those who are going through a particular struggle with sin. So as you're listening today, I thought what Andy said before he prayed, as he prayed, was incredibly beautiful and moving. Don't think about, oh, I wish this person was hearing this message. Oh, I hope this person is listening to what Pastor John says. Let's move that attitude out of our heads. And instead, let's think about, consider, maybe God has something to say to me in these words that Jesus is sharing with us today. Let's have the humility to recognize that God may be speaking to us. Because today we're going to see how Jesus deepened God's law. He's not just expanding the scope of one particular sin. He's analyzing the very nature of sin. What is sin? What does it mean? How does it work in our lives? And then he also tells us, how do kingdom citizens, how do those who know Jesus, how do they respond to their sin if they know God? In our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us about the dreadfulness of sin and tell us of the need for drastic action. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. If you'd like to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 511. So Matthew 5, big 5, and then little 27 through 30. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Jesus continuing the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking and he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Lord, humble us today. Teach us to rely on you, depend on you as we look at these challenging words from your son. God, this is a week more than ever where we shouldn't put ourselves in the mix, but see what you're saying. See you clearly in the truth that you're conveying. God, I feel this week more than ever, I need to pray that you would increase. We would see you clearly. May I decrease. May no personalities get in the way, but may we see your truth and how it impacts our lives. May what we say, say here today, Lord, may it lead us to see how dreadful sin is. May you inspire us to take the drastic action that we need to take by your power for your glory. Guide us, Lord, to focus on you, to do whatever it takes to kill sin in our lives. Lord, we cannot do it alone. We need you. We need your spirit. We need the presence of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's very briefly remind ourselves where we are. As said, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the four books, the stories, accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible. This is the longest speech, the longest sermon, the longest message from Jesus that we have in those Gospels. It is a sermon about true, exceeding righteousness. It's a message about what life looks like in God's kingdom among those who know Him. In this message, Jesus is calling, is calling his true followers. He's calling them to be citizens of his kingdom, to live their lives in a manner that's different from everyone else around them. Believers are to take their cue from Christ. They're to live in a dramatically different way from everyone else. Jesus should have a dramatic effect on how they live their lives. Believers will not look like those who are around them, because they will be practicing the lifestyle of a citizen of God's kingdom. When we last talked about the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at how this impacts our anger, how we process that emotion and our response when we're angered. But now, he's going to move on to talk about our lust. In this message, Jesus is first going to tell his disciples and us about the dreadfulness of sin, the dreadfulness of sin. Listen to verses 27 and 28 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us the second of six examples of where he's talking about how he's not getting rid of what the Old Testament law said. He's not abolishing it but he is fulfilling it. And like every one of these examples, it begins with a reference to the authority Jesus has. You see the little picture there. You have heard that it was said, he quotes the Old Testament law, but I say to you. In this case, the you have heard it was said is followed by a quotation of the seventh commandment. It's in Exodus 20, 14, Deuteronomy 5, 18, very simply, you shall not commit adultery. And as with the other examples that are here, what Jesus is saying in these two verses is a reaction to a very strict letter of the law interpretation that the religious leaders of his day, known as the Pharisees, 
they had a very strict interpretation of the law that actually missed the whole spirit of what God was saying and the whole spirit of the Ten Commandments. They had a very mechanical view of worshiping God. They thought that obedience to God meant that they obeyed a certain list of rules. And it didn't matter what was going on in the inside. As long as they did outside, as long as they acted in the way that God said, then they were good with God. They had abandoned the Old Testament law's stress on the heart, on the inner being. And they had created a list of outward requirements that could be met, and they could satisfy their self-righteousness. So they looked at this and said, we're not committing adultery, so we're good. Move on to the next command. But by creating this artificial standard, how often do we do the same thing in our relationship with God? We often reduce our obedience to God to performing specific actions. You know, as long as I'm reading my Bible, as long as I'm praying a particular number of minutes each day, as long as I give to church, as long as I come to church on Sunday, as long as I do some good works, as long as I avoid some particular big sins, as long as I avoid the big ones and I do all that, then I'm good. God and I are on the same page. We're falling into the trap of believing that our position before God is dependent on our obedience, that what we're doing is determining how close or how far we are to God. But for Christians, our actions do not determine our standing before God. Christ's actions, what Jesus did on our behalf, that's what determines how we relate to the Lord. We're not able to stand before God on our own merits, but solely in Christ alone. We cannot worship God. We cannot obtain salvation. We cannot find acceptance with God by our own actions. We make the same mistake the Pharisees did. But let's go back to what Jesus is saying here. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This was spoken almost 2,000 years ago. This was a day and age where a man was, maybe it wasn't praised, but he was generally permitted to sleep with as many unmarried women as he wanted. That was the general idea of the culture. But in this culture, Jesus' standard is radical. It is far-reaching in its effects. None of the other rabbis or teachers of the Jewish law even approached Jesus in his emphasis on the binding nature of the marriage bond, his expectation of complete fidelity and faithfulness between husband and wife. To Jesus, adultery is more than one spouse cheating on another. Jesus is saying the issue is not the act of adultery, the issue is the heart. Now in the Bible, the heart is not referring to the organ we have that pumps blood. It's referring to the center of a person's life, the source of his or her thoughts and emotions and will. And so to lust, then, would be to commit adultery at the center of one's being. It's to be exactly the opposite of those Jesus praised at the beginning of this sermon. Way back in verse 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who are pure on the inside, for they shall see God. Jesus is taking that statement, bringing it to the seventh commandment, and he's saying to be mentally unfaithful is to be completely guilty of breaking that law. Jesus would return to this issue later in the book of Matthew. In chapter 15, verses 18 and 20, he explains it's what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. 
Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, there's adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What comes out of the heart? In this passage, Jesus is showing us how all the commandments kind of connect together. He's talking about the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. But he's saying you're really breaking that one if you break the tenth commandment, which says do not covet, do not desire what someone else has. But if we're desiring what someone else has, we're really breaking the very first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods before me, before the one true God. Because in the end, lust and every other sin, they're not only against other people, they are also against God himself. After all, he was the one who said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Which lust is the exact opposite of doing those things. Now, of course, the desire to do something and the deed itself, they're not the same thing. The consequences are very different about thinking about something or actually doing it. Yes, but Jesus' point here is that they have the same value spiritually in God's eyes. While someone who lusts has not actually committed adultery, in the sight of God, in that person's innermost being, that person is an adulterer. And in this, we're seeing the power and the scope of that Old Testament law. With these words, Jesus is bringing out the sanctity, the value, the holiness of sex within a marriage relationship. Because God created sex. He protects it. He regulates it. Not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but out of his great love, his care and concern for his children, his desire to bless them. But more important, in a larger sense, for our purposes today, what Jesus is saying here about lust shows us the purpose of God's law, to reveal the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The Apostle Paul would say this in the book of Romans. He said, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And so here, what Jesus is doing is exposing how dreadful sin really is. Its dreadfulness is fully exposed in these words. Our sin is not a matter of our actions, not just a matter of our actions. Sin is a matter of the heart. It's something in the heart that produces immoral actions. A pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he points out this, what we really must concentrate upon is not so much sins with an S, the individual things we do, as sin, singular. Sins are nothing but symptoms of a disease. It is a disease that kills, not the symptoms. Sins are the coughs, the, the colds, the sneezes so many people are having. Sin is like that coronavirus. It is what is actually killing. And in this life, we will always deal with the disease of sin. It's in our very nature it's a powerful foe deeply embedded into who we are as fallen human beings. It's what makes us do what is not pleasing to God. And not only is it powerful, but it's also subtle. It deludes us, it deceives us into ignorant bliss and contentment. I'm okay, I'm not doing anything wrong. As those Pharisees, they thought that they were righteous. They were not committing adultery. They were not cheating on their spouses. Well, we can do the same thing. 
and we can excuse every imagined sin. If we're talking just about sexual sin, this is perhaps nowhere clearer in the enjoyment that we as people seem to find when we read, we hear about, we watch, or we talk about the sexual misdeeds of others. Did you hear what he did? Did you hear what happened to her? Oh my goodness. Why do we talk about those things? Why do we obsess about those things? Because we enjoy it. By obsessing about it, Jesus is saying we're kind of doing the same things by proxy. And according to Jesus, that means we're guilty of adultery. Sin is perverting something good that God created, like sex, like our natural instincts, like our bodies themselves, and instead brings them to ruin and destruction. We have to be wary of this very deadly foe. So no matter what level of spiritual growth you think you have, no matter what personal accomplishments you've achieved, do not make the mistake of thinking that you are immune to your indwelling sin and its devastating effects. You are not immune. There is no cure that you can put in yourself. Jesus may have chosen to talk about how dreadful sin is by looking at lust because there's no other sin which has as many devastating and horrific results. Since there's no sin that was ever committed that was not imagined first, lust is really the gateway to the destructive results of sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee, run from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It can severely damage those who are entrapped by it can lead them to doubt God and to doubt his goodness. But beyond the effects on the individual, the sin is against their own body. We daily interact with people, or perhaps we are those who have been affected of the res- by the results of sexual sin, who have been affected by divorce, by separation, and by the brokenness that comes from infidelity and lust. With a pornography industry that brings in billions annually, a culture where sexual deviance is accepted as the norm, this depravity can be very clearly seen. But there's even darker, more terrible results that things like TV shows and movies only hint at. There's those who've experienced abuse, rape, sex crimes, the plague of prostitution, sex slavery, where millions of women and children are mistreated with horrific and unimaginable cruelty. We don't like to think about those things, but we need to realize they happen. And the reason they happen is not just because of some evil on the outside, but because of our sin natures. Our lusts and desires pursued to their end lead to pain for other people. Sin is incredibly dangerous. It's a slippery slope to the wickedness that we see around us. So think about what Jesus is saying here and how radical this command is in light of all the sexual immorality in the culture, the world. Their culture was not more immoral than ours. And in the world, there's an expectation. Young people, they'll have multiple sexual partners before they get married, if they ever do at all. Porn, sexual uh, infidelity, they're rarely questioned. They're accepted as the norm. In fact, I was actually reading an article this week. It was from a non-Christian source, and they were talking about how young people today seem to struggle with relationships. And they talked about why, and they almost get to the conclusion, they're like, you know, maybe porn has something to do with this. Maybe pornography is damaging these relationships. 
But just as they're about to get there, they pulled back from it. Like they were afraid of upsetting their readers. They were like, this seems to be hurting people, but it can't be that because people like porn, so we're not going to criticize it. But how do we respond? It's easy to point at others, but how do we respond to what Jesus is saying? Well, Jesus' response to that is that we respond with his righteousness. We're righteous as he is righteous. The righteousness that he gives, that he imputes to his kingdom citizens. The righteousness he calls for is not just outward actions, but a righteousness from the heart that produces holiness, purity, and love. And that kind of righteousness will demand drastic action that is only possible by the indwelling, cleansing, purifying, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's easy to say that, but what does that look like practically? Well, Jesus himself talks about that in the second half of our passage. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us about the need for drastic action the need for drastic action. Listen to 29 and 30 again. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. With these two parallel, they're very similar statements, Jesus is lowering the value of two body parts that would have been very prized in the ancient world. Your right eye, your right hand, most people were right-handed, and having both of those was very helpful in life. And while they're very valuable members of the body, they are inconsequential in light of eternity. Eternity is so much more important than the eye and the hand. Now, Jesus doesn't very explicitly say how it is the eye or the hand is causing someone to sin, but he was just talking about lust. He's talking about sexual sin, and it's pretty apparent how something, how we sin with our eye or something we touch with our hands could involve sexual sin and could ruin a life. But Jesus also uses almost these exact same words, and we're not going to read them because they're almost exactly the same, later in this book in Matthew 18. And there he's talking about all sin. So this very startling imagery emphasizes how important it is for kingdom citizens, God's people, to take whatever steps are necessary to control their passions. It's better to remove a prized body part than to compromise with evil. Now, some people have taken this to a little bit of an extreme. It's said that an early church father named Origen took these verses and other commands in the New Testament literally, and he cut things off. He made himself a eunuch. There, problem solved. Now he doesn't have to worry about it. But unfortunately, amputation does not solve the problem of the heart. We can just as easily lust or imagine any other sin without our eyes or our hands. So what is Jesus telling us to do here? Well, he's not telling us to maim ourselves, but he is saying to practice a ruthless self-denial, a ruthless self-denial that keeps us from sin. Citizens of the kingdom, they're to behave as if they had removed members of their body, as if they had cut out important parts of their life in order to avoid sin, cut out the things that cause sin. And why are they to live this way? 
Well, both the end of verse 29 and 30 tell us, because undealt with sin will inevitably lead to judgment. The one whose life is characterized and controlled by sexual sin will experience eternal judgment. It is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. But it's not just sexual sin that warrants this kind of punishment. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is a declaration of war. It's saying, God, I know better than you do. It reflects that our desires, our worship has been misdirected from God onto things we want to worship and praise, onto idols, what we want, the God of me. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, our love affair with sin is idolatry before God. And that means that sin must be dealt with immediately. It cannot be tapered off gradually. Jesus' point is it must be cut off, dealt with now. A scholar named Craig Blomberg, he puts it this way. He says, Christians must recognize those thoughts and actions which long before any overt sexual sin make the possibility of giving in to the temptation more likely. They must recognize things that if I go down this route, I may give in to sexual sin. And so they must take dramatic action to avoid them. Christians should take dramatic action to avoid the possibility of sin. In his words here on adultery and lust, that's what Jesus is calling for, this kind of dramatic, drastic action to deal with sin. In older Christian writers, they called this the mortification of sin. And that just means putting to death. It means killing sin. That's why I call the title of the sermon, Kill Sin, Whatever It Takes. But it's more than just killing sin. It's replacing that sin in our lives with what honors God. Because a life that's overflowing with what honors the Lord, that'll be a life that's less likely to be characterized by sin against Him. What Jesus is calling for here is a radical discipleship. This is a passionate following after our Lord and Savior. It's putting Jesus first, not our own desires. The verse we read earlier, Paul recognized this point. He says, if you live according to the flesh, what you want, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you kill, you mortify the deeds, the sins of the body, then you will live. If we want to live, if we want to live abundantly and eternally, we must put sin to death. We must kill our sin. If you were here last week, uh, Tom was speaking and he talked about chains that we have when we're in our comfort box. Those chains that we have, they're not to be played with. They are to be killed. They are to be removed from our lives. If sin controls the life of a professed Christian, then that believer has no reason to think that they are saved. Now, let me clarify that. I'm not saying they are not saved. Only God knows the heart. But unbelievers are those who are controlled by sin, not believers. Someone who knows Jesus works. They get their sin out of their life as soon as possible. They kill their sin. In the famous words of the English pastor John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But again, how do we do this? What does this look like practically? Get to the practical point. Well, to finish up our time this morning, I'd like to talk about two steps of drastic action that we must take 
to kill our sin. That's that one and two on your outline, two steps. And the first is to focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. I was blessed not having to preach a sermon the two weeks before this, so in the time to prepare for this, I decided to read the most popular Christian book on the subject of killing sin. It was written hundreds of years ago by that man I just quoted, John Owen, and it's called The Mortification of Sin. But remember, that word just means to kill sin. So it really just means the killing of sin is what the book's title is. And it's not a long book. It's really just over 100 pages long. However, it is very deep and very convicting, and it was not at all what I expected it to be. I expected to open this book and have Owen give me a list of steps that I could easily share with you. They say, if you want to kill sin, do these things. If you want to kill sin, then don't do these things. I was looking for that list, but that's not what the book is about at all. In fact, for a book called The Mortification, The Killing of Sin, he actually doesn't get to how to do that until the very last few pages of the book. Owen was much more focused on the heart. And the point of his book is that you cannot, you cannot kill sin unless your heart is set and focused on Jesus Christ. You can't kill sin unless you are focused on Christ. Or in Owen's words, the root must be dealt with. The nature of the tree changed, or no good fruit will be brought forth. The heart must be focused on Christ. We must be changed in our desires from the inside out. Because only then will we be successful at killing sin and living for the Lord. The truth is that sin is deadly. It is dangerous for every person. It kills everyone and everything that it touches. If you do not know Jesus, then your sin will kill you eternally. Your sin separates you from God. It will keep you from His love for all eternity. Jesus says, don't throw away your members. Your whole body will be thrown into hell, a never-ending death. However, you can escape sin by turning from it, by trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He died to save you from eternal death. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, well then find out today how you can know him. Turn from your sin. Come to him. Come to know him today. Your life will not change until you are focused on him. And I was just talking to those who do not know Jesus, but the same is true for believers too. It's not that we become a Christian and then we're like, great, I focused on Jesus, now let's work on me. No, Once we get saved, we continue to focus on Christ. John Owen added this. He said, let this then be fixed upon your heart. If you have not, if you don't have relief from Jesus, then you shall never have any relief at all. All your ways, all your endeavors, all your contendings, anything you do that are not animated, that don't come from this expectation of relief from Christ and Him only, they're to no purpose. They will do you no good. Now that might not sound, that's not very fresh, that's not practical, that's not a list, Pastor John. Oh, but my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is so, so true. Because if our hearts are not focused on Christ, then any change we attempt to make 
It will only be temporary. Owen said that if we're trying to stop a particular sin because we're afraid of what other people might think when they find out, then we're acting no differently from an unbeliever. If the only reason we stop sinning is because we're afraid of being punished by God or by someone else, then we have not fixed our problem. We have not fixed the heart. Owen tells believers to seek after Jesus Christ. So yes, he does not give us a list of action steps. Instead, he begs his audience to cry out to Jesus, to rely on the Holy Spirit. He says, assure yourselves, unless you long for deliverance, you shall not have it. Killing sin is not something we easily decide to do. We don't wake up and say, okay, well, today I'm not going to do that sin anymore. It's a complete change of heart brought about by the Holy Spirit. And only Christ, working through the Holy Spirit, can bring about true, lasting change. Now, I'm about to, in just a moment, I'll talk about some practical, dramatic, and drastic measures we could take, but please, please, please don't miss the point that John Owen's making, that I'm trying to make, and that Jesus is trying to make. You can do every single practical suggestion I'll give you, but unless your heart is focused on Jesus Christ, nothing will change. Nothing. Everything depends on Him. But if we're focused on Jesus, if He is the one that we are aiming out, then we can take the drastic action of cutting out whatever it takes to kill sin. Whatever it takes, whatever is necessary. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul will describe it this way. I know it's small. He says, put to death what is, belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires with greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. And then Paul will tell his friend Timothy, he tells him to flee youthful lust or youthful passions. We don't feed our flesh, our sin. We avoid everything that could hinder our holiness. We restrain our sinful desires. Believers, this is a war, and we must be ruthless with dealing with our enemy. Our sin must be killed. Now, in our sin, we want to seek a middle road. We, we want to compromise. Well, I'll do this, God. I'll, I'll change this area. Jesus calls us to extreme measures. He says, pull out the eye, cut off the right hand. And yes, it runs counter to our culture of permissiveness, what people call tolerance, but we must decide to live in light of the world to come. We must carefully consider what needs to be removed, what needs to be changed in our lives so that we, not figuring something out for somebody else, but you individually, will sin less and live for God more. Now, I know we don't control everything in our lives. We don't control sickness, suffering, but we sin as believers because we want to not because we have to. And that's, that's actually good news because that means that with God's help, we can make changes to avoid sin. We sang a song earlier today where we talked about, I am free, I'm free to run, I'm free to live for the Lord. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. A pastor named John Stott, he said, it's better to forego, to let go of some experiences in this life in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It's better to accept some cultural amputation to not do some things that are popular in this world 
than risk final destruction in the next. If we are willing to risk sinning so we can have some experience, we can get some pleasure that we want, well, then we're not very serious about killing our sin. Are we willing to endure mocking? Are we willing to endure personal loss to pursue Christ? This process of removal may lead us to get rid of things that are not sin in and of themselves. And so, in a sense, it does involve a kind of maiming, a cutting things off, not of our physical body, but perhaps cutting something off from our life, a part of our life. We may have to sacrifice something for the greater good of obedience to God, cut something out for the good of spiritual growth, remove something so we can be more conformed, made more like Jesus Christ. All possible sources of temptation should be eliminated. Whatever stands between you and God, whether it's good or evil, that's an idol. It has to be removed from that place of prominence in your heart. So what could this look like? Well, it may mean that you stop going particular places. You don't go to particular websites. Maybe you stop watching certain TV shows or movies. Let me just talk for myself. This is just me speaking for me. There are certain movies that I choose not to watch, not because I think there's something wrong with them or I critique someone who does, but because if I know if I watch them, it almost always leads to sinful thoughts and actions. There was a particular video game I really enjoyed playing. I played it for years, but it was an issue in my thought life, so I stopped playing it. And again, I'm not criticizing others. If other people watch those particular movies, if others play those games, that's that's between them and God. I'm standing on my conviction that for me, this led me to sinful actions. And so I removed it out of desire to mortify, to kill that sin in my life. Maybe there's games or movies, something like that in your life that do the same thing. And maybe you need to do the same. I also took the step to invest some of my own money into accountability software on my computer and on my phone. It wasn't cheap. It was a pain to set up, and it's an inconvenience to use, but I am so glad that I have it, because that inconvenience is worth removing that temptation to sin, and maybe you need to do something similar. But maybe, maybe for you, maybe you need to do something even more extreme than those things. If having a smartphone is a problem for you, then get rid of it and get a dumb phone. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Now, you might say, Pastor, that would be so inconvenient for me. It's so helpful for me to look up things like that. If it's a problem for you, are you serious about killing your sin, or are you not? If the internet in your home is a problem for you, then get rid of your internet or take away your access to it. And again, I kid you not. I know the internet is everywhere, but it is not worth it if it causes you to sin. Dealing with your sin is much more important. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying every person should get rid of their smartphone. I'm not saying every person should cut their internet. I'm saying if it is a problem for you, you should do whatever it takes. And you know, the same principle goes for any sin, not, not just lust, any issue in your life. Whatever your struggle is, you should do whatever it takes to kill it. Because if something you desire is more important than God, the Lord and master of the universe, then drastic steps must be taken. We must do whatever it takes to pursue holiness. Let me think of one or two examples. If getting on social media makes you lash out in anger, then delete your account. I kid you not. Get rid of it. 
If watching the news makes you respond angrily to someone, then don't watch it at all. If anything makes you sin, if anything tempts you to sin, it's not worth it to use it. It really isn't. It's just for this time. It doesn't last for eternity. You can make excuses, but the sin is not worth it. In every case, we repent, we turn away from our sin, we earnestly strive to seek the Lord over the things of this world. If sin is a declaration of war against God, then you, a citizen of God's kingdom, declare war every day on your sin. Wage war against it. If the Holy Spirit convicts you about something, some practice or habit in your life, remove it before it destroys you. Because it will. It will destroy your ministry. It will destroy your testimony to others. And if you let it, it will destroy your life. Deal with it now. But as I said, doing whatever it takes, it's not only putting something to death, it's not only cutting things out, it also means filling our minds with the things of God. We read part of this passage earlier, 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul says, flee youthful lust. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you do this with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That energy, that emotion, that intention you invested in sinful pursuits, turn it toward developing a God-honoring character. Paul will express it a slightly different way in the book of Romans, chapter 6. He says, do not let sin reign rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present any members of your body as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments, tools for righteousness. I love this verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Again, as we sang, we are free. Sin has no dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin does not have dominion over believers. If we know Jesus, then we do not have to live in sin. And maybe your struggle seems so great. You're like, Pastor, I struggle to believe that. Well, ask your brothers and sisters in Christ for help. Depend on your church family. There are men and women here who would love to support you in your pursuit of God. Let them help you. Let them help you to fill your mind with thoughts that honor the Lord. Filling our minds with the things of God also means remembering that a price had to be paid to give us this freedom. Earlier I mentioned Colossians 3, 5. It said, put to death what is earthly in you. But that command, there's something that comes before it. Just a couple of verses before, it says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, will seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. How can we do this? Because you have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We can do whatever it takes because Jesus did whatever it takes. He did whatever it took to restore our relationship with God. And because of, how we di- uh, because of how he died, we can now live 
the way that he lived. Long story short, the drastic step required by Jesus is to live out Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision, allowance, excuse for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our tendency towards not just sexual sin, but all kinds of sin, it should give us humility. We are spiritually bankrupt before God, but He loves us just the same. All of us are. Those things I talked about that I had to cut out in my life, I had to cut them out because I'm a sinner and I need this grace. I need this. We all do. We will only be successful at killing sin as God works through us by His Spirit. His presence, His aid in our lives is an absolute necessity. We are dependent on Him and on Him alone. Pastor Lloyd-Jones, he concludes that this doctrine, this teaching about sin, leads us to see the absolute need of a power greater than ourselves to deliver us. It is a doctrine that makes a man run to Christ, run to Christ, and rely upon Him. It makes him, it makes her realize that without Him, without Jesus we can do nothing. Without Christ, you can do nothing. We can do nothing. If you do not know Jesus, then you need him. You need a relationship with him. Find out today how you can have that. And if you do know Jesus, guess what? You need him. You need him every day. You need his help to kill your sin. These words from Jesus told us about how dreadful sin is and told us about drastic action we need to take. We do that by focusing on Jesus, cutting off whatever it takes to kill sin. And in light of what Jesus is saying, each and every one of us in this room has a choice to make. First, will we acknowledge the dreadfulness of our sin? If we don't know Christ, will we acknowledge that, wow, my sin is separated from God and I need His grace? If we're a believer, will we realize my sin is still pushing me away and I need his help? And then the second question is, will we take the drastic action that's required to kill sin? We don't know Jesus. Will we take that step of coming to know him? And if we do, will we cut off whatever it takes, make that drastic action to kill and remove sin and to know Jesus better? And you know, only you, can answer those questions for your own life. Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, brother, sister, aunt, cousin cannot make that decision for you. Only you can decide if you will see your sin, recognize what it is, and only you can make the decision to make a drastic action for change. My prayer is that you will recognize the dreadfulness of your sin, that you will take the drastic action needed, because then when Christ works in you, oh, you can respond in sweet worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he alone is the one who is worthy.